the letter of Titus as we're going to continue our series on church, uh, Titus, called Church Basics. So draw your attention today to Titus chapter 1. This is our fourth in a series so far on Titus. I think we'll have eight total. So we're about halfway done. But we're still in chapter we're still in chapter one. And to review a little bit where we've been, we saw the, the basics number one of uh, church basics is to know what the mission is. We saw that in per- verses one through four, where the Apostle Paul shared his missi- message um, and what his mission and his calling was. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Second, we saw expository preaching, a commitment to expository preaching. Which we saw in scattered places in chapter 1 and also in chapter 2. And then last week we saw a commitment to sound doctrine. We saw the importance of sound doctrine. The uh, sound meaning healthy, you know, healthy hygiene uh, Hygiene doctrine, the teaching, the true teaching that is uh, hygiene for our souls and how dangerous and unhealthy and and sick causing um, bad teaching is. And so we saw that last week. Today, we're going to look at part four of Church Basics, and that is appoint qualified leaders. One of the key basics for any church is its leaders. And the leaders of the church... There's, there's lots of leadership in lots of different realms, and the, the realm kind of dictates the, the type of leadership that is, uh, that is required. Leaders in the Bible, are not, they're not political leaders. They're not military leaders. Uh, they're not business leaders. They're spiritual leaders. Their task is spiritual oversight of the local congregation. So today, we're not going to be dealing too much. We'll, we'll see a little bit about the task of the leaders. But mostly today, it's going to be at the qualifications for leaders. The qualifications for qualified leaders of the church. That's the topic today in today's scripture verses, which is verses 5 through 9. And before I read it, I want to kind of give you a sketch of where we're going. I'll begin with... Uh, kind of three preliminaries, three preliminaries that we want to cover before we get into the passage. And then there are 17 points in this sermon. And I'll spend about 10 minutes each. We'll keep it real concise. Um, (laughs) So plan plan ahead. There's only a little bit of bread left. So um, no, but we will cover 17 points, but we'll we'll go through them uh, quite quite briefly and actually we'll group them into four key areas so what you'll need to know is i'm going to do three preliminaries before we we really get into our passage and then four key areas of qualification so here are the three preliminaries i want you to notice first okay the three preliminaries i want you to notice first there are two offices in the church there are two offices in the church if you're familiar with the bible and familiar with the new testament Or you're reading through and you might see a whole collection of terms that are used to describe the leaders of the church. And you might think that there's a multiplicity of those things. 
Um, but when, in, in actual fact, there's only two. There's only two offices in the church. The one office is uh, elders, overseers, pastor, shepherd, teacher. Okay? And the other office is deacon. Kind of like the deacon office. One term. Pretty consistent. All the way across the board. It's the first office that Titus deals with today in his letter. But I just want to um, do a little brief survey on this other office of elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, teacher. <laughs> because there's a whole collection of terms used to describe this single, this single office. And so to do that, I want to show you kind of a couple of uh, scripture passages. You don't have to turn to them. The references are in the handout. So you can look at these if you'd like. But I, and I'm also giving you the, some Greek words. Not that you need to know the Greek words, but to at least know the associations of the terms. This is what I want you to point out. Okay? Or what I want you to see this is what I want to point out. Um, in the parallel passage to Titus 1... Paul writes to Timothy, and he does basically the same kind of thing. He wants to give the qualifications for leadership in the church. And he does it in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he begins this way. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, okay, and the Greek word there is episkopos. Okay, it's where we get the word episcopal, right? Uh, Anyone who aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And he goes on, he goes, therefore, an overseer. And then he goes on to list the qualifications are very similar to what we'll read in Titus chapter 1. Okay, so here's one of the titles, overseer. But in Titus 1, in the parallel passage here, he doesn't, he doesn't start by using this, this term. Notice what Titus says in verse 5. He writes to Titus and he says, this is why I left you in Crete so that I'm so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. OK, so this is presbyteros, presbyteros, it's where we get the, the presbyter or presbyterian. Right. This is that's kind of describing that that form of government, a group of, of elders. Okay, so, you're, so you might go, wait a second, why, why did Paul write to Titus, or Timothy, rather, and say to Timothy, uh, set aside overseers, but here he says to Titus, elders. Well, notice what he says just a couple verses later. He goes, for an overseer, so after he describes this office in this task, he goes, for an overseer, and he uses the term that he uses in, for, in Titus, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy 3. So here you see the example of the two terms kind of being used synonymously. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So there's, there's the first connection. Overseer and elder are used kind of interchangeably. Similarly, Paul, when he, in Acts chapter 20, um, as he's getting ready to go back to Jerusalem, he calls together the elders of one of the churches that he was at in Ephesus, okay, right, the book of Ephesians. And he calls the elders to meet him into the next town. So he brings all the elders over. And it says here, Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders. Here's the, the presbyteros of the church to come to him. And then he addresses these elders with these words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Okay, notice the shepherding imagery here. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He just called them elders. And he addresses them and he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then he does this. 
to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. That verb there, to care for, is the verb form of the word shepherd. To shepherd or to pastor. So he's saying that calls the elders there and he says and the holy spirit has made you overseers and the purpose of what you've called to be an overseer is to do is to pastor to shepherd so you notice how all the terms are used kind of interchangeably so an overseer is an elder an elder and overseer is also a shepherd and then peter says this in first peter chapter five in a very similar it's a very parallel passage to to titus one and to 1 Timothy 3, where he says, So I exhort the elders, okay, notice that, presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he uses the verb again for shepherd. Shepherd, pastor, care for, feed, guard, protect, everything that's connected in that image of shepherding. Calls them elders, and he says, This is your job, shepherd. The flock, and he uses the, the related term to the verb there, the flock of God that is among you. And then it says this in some. There's some uh, manuscripts in the Greek New Testament that don't have this, but some that do. In the ESV, it's included there. So if you can see the little footnote, it'll say some manuscripts don't have this. But it's interesting. If this is a, a real manuscript, a real uh, an authentic part here, it's interesting. This incorporates the third use of uh, he uses the verb form for episkopos, exercising oversight. So here you have all three of these kind of terms in, in play uh, yet again. And then lastly, Paul, too, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, he's speaking about the, the work of God here in um, the gifts that he has given to his church. He gave uh, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. And if you notice the footnote there, it says, and the shepherd teachers, because it doesn't have that definite article there. So it's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd, and no the for teachers. So a lot of scholars see this shepherd teacher role goes together. So overall, there you get the, the picture. The elders are overseers, our pastors, our shepherds, our teachers. This is the office that Paul is giving instructions about that we're going to read here in a moment. So that's the first the first thing I want you to notice. There are two offices in the church. The second thing is, second preliminary, is uh, there are parallel passages, as I had mentioned. What we're going to read here in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, has a very similar parallel. A lot of the same terms are used. Um, we saw, just read 1 Peter chapter 5, also gives some of the same uh, things in the larger context of that chapter. What's interesting is that, uh, and 1 Timothy includes some instructions for deacons that is not in Titus. What's interesting is that there's significant overlap in the terms that they're using for qualifications for the spiritual leadership in the church. Um, however, there's a lot of terms that are different. 1 Timothy has some that Titus doesn't. Titus has some that 1 uh, Timothy doesn't. Why, why the, why the dis disparities between the list? Why are they distinct? Well, I think a couple reasons. One, th these lists are not exhaustive. Not, not an exhaustive, comprehensive checklist. Okay? These are to be kind of a representative picture. 
It's not a checklist. He's painting a portrait of the type of character of the person who's going to be leaders of the church. It's a general sketch. Okay? So we, we shouldn't go, well, he, he really is, he scores really high in 15 of these 17 things. But, you know, that's not quite the, the idea. The idea is uh, you don't want to have any grave concerns over, over any of them. But the idea is the general picture of overall maturity. That, that's the one. The one reason why I think that there's disparities or distinctions there. Um, but here's what else is, is kind of interesting about these, this list of all of these qualifications, and I think also kind of explains why there's some distinctions between, uh, between these. And that is, um, uh, that is this. God has given over leaders over the churches. He has given the qualifications for those leaders, and all the sheep need to know what to look for. This is why these lists are included here. This is why it's written in a letter that's to be directed to the entire church. Because some of us might be thinking, very similar to the, uh, um, what we saw with um, the expository preaching, we may tend to think that, well, that's, I'm not going to be a preacher, so why do I need to know this? In a similar way, you need to know it because you need to know what to look for in expository preaching. In a similar way, you go, well, why, why does this concern me? Why do I need to know about all of these qualifications for the leaders? Uh, there's a couple of reasons why. One, the selection process of elders is actually a corporate responsibility. Okay, so if you're part of the Christian church, you're in the feedback loop. If you're a member, a covenant member of a church, you're in the feedback loop for the leaders of the church. Now, I know in this passage, it says Paul told Titus to appoint the elders. But one of the key elements or the key characteristics is the reputation of the person. Does this person have a good reputation? Is he, is he good with outsiders? Well, the only way you glean that is by the, the people in the congregation that know, know these candidates well, right? So there's, there's a little bit of responsibility. You need to know what these are. Because you are, or you are part of the feedback loop in that. And secondly, and here's the second, uh, well, the second reason comes to the third one here. So the, why are the parallel passages? Why do you need to know this? Because you're part of the feedback process. And then number three, this is another key thing that, that I think why we need to know these things. Every single one of these characteristics in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3, Every single one, with the exception of two, not in this passage, but from the Titus passage, can be found as a characteristic of every Christian. Every single qualification in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, with two minor exceptions, can be found as a characteristic that should be displayed in the life of every Christian. Those two exceptions in 1 Timothy 3, in case you're curious, is, is able to teach. Not everyone, not every single Christian should be expected to, to teach. That's one. And the second one is the qualification that Paul gives of must not be a recent convert, right? Well, at some point or another, recent converts are no longer recent converts, right? <laughs> if, you've been, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, you're not a recent convert. So, uh, so that's the other exception, right? So other than those two, every single characteristic, every single trait that we're going to be looking at today is 
something that is expected of every Christian. So we're going to be looking at what these characteristics are. Okay, so this is what's expected for every Christian, which makes sense if you look at the larger context of 1 Peter chapter 5, when 1 Peter said, or when Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock like we just saw, exercising oversight. He goes on to say, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the leaders, there should be an example of what everybody else should be called to do. So what applies to them applies to you. It's kind of the main point here for the third one. As we look through these qualifications, you need to think, picture, okay, who is a potential, who has a potential leader, overseer, pastor, elder of a church? Who's the potential one for that? And secondarily, I want you to think, how, how can I grow in each of these areas too? The message should be, by God's grace, by his, the Holy Spirit working within me, what are the areas in which I, I need to grow? So we'll look at Titus's list with those, uh, with those things in mind. And with that, let's read the passage. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, godly, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. So four areas for what to look for in a spiritual leader in God's church. The first one, and kind of grouping these in four uh, key areas. Like I said, there's some 17 points here, but we're going to group them into four. His first is his reputation. Verse 6a, if anyone is above reproach, it says in verse 6. That's the main one. And then Paul repeats it again in verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach reproach okay what does above reproach mean does not somebody who is perfect because if that's the case no one can serve it means that this person is not susceptible to the charge of anything that will discredit him or disgrace christ i'll say that again it means uh it is a person who is not susceptible to the charge that to any charge that will discredit him or disgrace Christ. Here's a way these terms are sometimes translated in some other uh, other versions: blameless, without fault, without accusation, unaccused, 
irreproachable. A man of unimpeachable, uh, unimpeachable character. It's used twice in this passage. And this is important. This is an important attribute, a very important characteristic for those who are shepherding God's church. Because, as he says in verse 7, this person is God's steward over God's church. It's, It's a trust that has been given to him to shepherd over God's people. The, the term that's used there for steward is kind of like a household manager. So think about somebody who's managing, overseeing the, the, the spiritual health of, of a group of, of people, the flock of Christ. And this passage, as I, as I said, this also applies to professing Christians too. This, this unapproachable, this being above reproach. Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, and for you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So how is your reputation? That's verse verse 6a. Here's the second kind of groupings of terms. And this is, we move from his his reputation to his home. His home, his wife, and his children. A commentator uh, named Donald Guthrie says, the home is the training ground for Christian leaders. So he gives a couple of characteristics here that fit under this category. Um, First is in relation to his spouse, if he has any, and to his children. If he has any notice what it says in verse, the rest of verse six, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let's handle the first one first husband of, of one wife. The, the Greek literally reads a one woman man. Now, what, what does that mean? I think years ago, we kind of went through all of these different uh, interpretations of what that means. Uh, does it mean that the person has to be married? So in other words, if you're single, you don't get to be a leader of the church. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Jesus was single. Paul was unmarried. Well, it's a, number two, it's no polygamists. That's setting the bar really low, right? You can't be married to more than one woman at the same time. I, I think that's included, but not limited to that. Um, the other ones that are more tricky. What about those who are widowed and remarried? Some say, yes, this is what it applies to. They're basing this on the Old Testament that if a, a priest was widowed, he was not he was forbidden to remarry. I, I don't think it includes that. Number four is uh, no divorced and remarried. Now, this one's this one's kind of interesting because Jesus himself gave instances where divorce and remarriage was permitted in certain instances where somebody is the victim, um, they're the innocent party of a, a guilty, uh, innocent party, and the other person has been guilty of a, of a serious sexual sin. Similarly, Paul permits re- remarriage for those who, who have been abandoned, who are new converts to Christianity and whose spouse doesn't want to be a part of them in the Christian faith anymore. And he 
he gives permissions for there. So there's some interesting uh, ways of understanding that. But many people would say, no, this uh, being divorced or remarried would be a, a, a disqualification uh, entirely. I don't, I don't think that's exactly what this passage is meaning, but I understand why they, they get that. The fifth one is, is basically this. It's no one who's guilty of marital unfaithfulness. It's a, kind of a general term. He's a, he's a one-woman man. He's a good husband. He's a loving husband and a loving father. So that's one. And the second one, it is his children. This is related to his, his children. His children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, I think kind of the general picture here uh, are the children in the household raised in the nurture and admiration of the Lord. I think it's referring to small children here. It's the technia is the Greek word. It can be used for older children, but I think it tends to be smaller ones. Because what do you do if it's a grown adult who's, who's living their own life and they're out of the home? Are uh, parents held responsible for a 20 or 30 something year old son or daughter uh, who has drifted away from the faith? Is that a disqualification? I, I don't think that that's what Paul is getting at. Uh, here to Titus. I think he's saying overall, he's a faithful man, a faithful husband to his wife. He loves, uh, he loves his wife as Christ loves the church and he loves his children as wonderful gifts. And he instructs them in, in the Christian faith and prays, prays for them. So how are you doing on all of those husbands? How are you doing? At loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives. Vice, vice versa. How are you doing in uh, the nurture and admiration. Uh, uh, admonition of the Lord. Raising your children in those. Again these are the, these are the types of traits. That you're looking for in leaders. Because this should be seen in all Christians. As they're growing and maturing. So two, his home. Number three, his character. And this is where we'll go through kind of rapid fire through a lot of these. There are five negatives and six positives here. Here, let's deal with the five negatives are all in verse seven. The six positives are all in verse eight. Verse seven. Um, he must not be arrogant. Okay, some other ways of this is translated as self-willed. Self-opinionated, self-pleasing, overbearing. I don't know. I don't like the self-opinionated one. I could kind of be opinionated. Um, but I think it's uh, in an arrogant or overbearing kind of, kind of way. This is the term that, that Peter describes of the unrighteous in, in contrast to what is expected for believers in 2 Peter chapter. 2 verses 9 through 10. This is a term that's synonymous with, with unrighteous. So arrogant, proud, boastful, self-willed. Second one, not quick-tempered. It's a bad week for this one, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of laughing in my family's row. Um, Means here to, to be um, 
uh, short-tempered, hot-tempered. It's the only place that this is used in the New Testament, so it's kind of hard to see some, some comparative uh, terms here. Um, but, uh, but I think in, the lar- in connection to the larger picture here, you'll get a, you, I think it's connected with the fourth one of these, these five negatives. The number three is not a drunkard. Okay, it's sometimes translated as, as not given to wine, given to it. And so it doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that you're a teetotaler. It means that you're addicted to too much wine. Or one who lingers beside his wine is how one uh, person translated this. Sitting long beside it, given to drunkenness or a heavy drinker. And again, this is a trait that is expected not just of leaders, but of, of Christians as a whole. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, says, And do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Number four of these five negatives is not violent. And I think that helps explain the not quick-tempered in, verse, uh, in number the second one. And this is, uh, this is meant to be a pugnacious person, a violent person. Given to brawling, given to blows, is how one uh, translator translates it. Aggressive and violent. So it's not, not a violent or aggressive kind of person. And the last negative, not greedy for gain. Not shamelessly greedy for money or avarice or covetous. We saw in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain, he says, but eagerly. And again, these are things that are all expected of and required for Christians. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, speaking of all Christians there, says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plague people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those are the five negatives. Now we look at the six positives. Uh, Verse 8. But hospitable... Paul writes, hospitable. I love, I love this term. The Greek word here is uh, philozenos. And if you were to break it down, it's a compound word. It's the word uh, philo, phileo for, for love. And then xenos means uh, foreigners or strangers or outsiders. So it's the love of outsiders. To love those who are kind of on the outside, the strangers. It's where we get the word xenophobia, by the way. So the fear of outsiders or strangers. Here it's the opposite. It's the love of outsiders and strangers. One of the characteristics is this person sees somebody who's on the outside and welcomes them in. So hospitable, welcoming, welcoming those who you normally wouldn't welcome into your home, maybe, you know, because they're, they're not friends or close associates or neighbors or family. But you invite them, you say, come, come to my home. So I love that picture and the imagery there. And again, this is expected for all Christians. First Peter 4. Show hospitality to one another. It's the same word. Show philozenos to one another. 
Contribute to the needs of the saints, Paul says in Romans 12, and seek to show philosophy, show hospitality. And Hebrews uh, chapter 13 says something very interesting here. The writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect to show philosophy to strangers because he says this, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What does that mean? You know, like, is that is that heavenly being angels? Or is that talking earthly messengers? But it's very intriguing, though. And he's saying, hey, you never know. You never know what, what person you might be reaching out to. So, friends, hospitable. It's a trait we look for in leaders. But how are you doing in your hospitality? How are you doing in your falazenas? The love of strangers or outsiders. That's the first positive. Second positive, lover of good. This is also the same uh, prefix that phyla uh, it's same as the uh, philosinos, except it's the agathos. It's the, what is good, the lover of what is good. A right-minded person. Always devoted to what is best. Even if, it, even if what is best is not in their own personal interest. This is somebody who's willing to, to change what's in their interest for the good of others. They love what is good. So the lover of good... Third one, self-controlled. I love how this is. This one is translated in a lot of different ways: sober-minded, steady, prudent, temperate, self-restrained. So this is a, this is a term describing the, the attribute of being calm or, or self-controlled, so as to be able to act. Properly and appropriately. To be moderate in participation in legitimate activities is how somebody else put that. So self-controlled. How are you doing at being calm and self-controlled and able to act properly in the right, uh, appropriately in the right way? Number four, upright. And this is related to the word for righteousness or justification. It's related to that word. It means to be just or to be fair. To, to, be, to be fair and judicial. To act honestly and equitably, equitably with people. So the question would be, is this person fair and equitable to all? Is, is this person prone to showing favoritism over one group of individuals over another or does he treat everyone the same five the fifth one out of these six positives holy now this is different than the other term uh, for holy or saints that is used this is slightly different this one hasias not hagias it's a slightly different word and this means devout or pious or pure or true to their moral obligations. Um, one commentator says that this is relating to the laws of God to be to be to be do what is rightly pleasing to God in all things. And again, Paul mentions this as being a qualification for a person who is in Christ, not just for leaders. This is something that's for everyone. In Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-four. He tells you to take off the old person 
And he says in verse 24 of Ephesians 4, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's the same term. So the question that could be asked for this is, is God evident? Is God an evident reality in this person's life? Does God matter? Does he think about God and how to, to honor God and to fulfill his obligations and duties to what God calls us to do? And number six, discipline. Uh, this is very similar to, a, to an earlier one we read. It's like self-control or exercising proper restraint. Okay, so, you know, especially within regards to things that would tend to cause some indulgence. See, what kind of restraint is there? Does this person have uh, the, the inner resources to control, um, to control themselves and to control their desires? Does this person have the ability to focus on God's will over their own? What God has revealed for them to do than what their own impulses might cause. Okay, so it's the strength to do, uh, to resist doing anything that is unjust or unholy or contrary to, to what God has revealed. So those are, those are 11 little kind of snapshots. Hopefully all of these are putting together a picture of what is what are the qualifications you look for in a spiritual leadership in the church, but also uh, attributes and ways in which you as a believer in Christ are to grow. And lastly, what to look for in the spiritual leaders of God's church is his convictions. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, we saw that last week, or healthy doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I, I, I love this verse because uh, I see um, this, in this verse I see a lot about my, my calling. <laughs> uh, these convictions of this, of this elder. It gives, here if you could see anywhere in this passage where uh, he's describing the task, it would be here. Mostly everywhere else that we've seen, we're looking for the, the character of the person. Have you noticed that there's not been a lot of emphasis on their skills? Skill set is important. But skill set is not the most important. Character is the most important. But if you could look anywhere in here on what it is that they do, it would be here in this passage. Notice, he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Okay? And I think of this drawing on the pastor imagery. You feed the sheep. You feed the sheep. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay? You fight the wolves. So you feed the sheep and you fight the wolves. But, but, key, but key to both of those things is, what, is how this verse begins. Hold firm to the trustworthy word, faithful word as taught. You heard me say this before. Pastors should not be theological innovators. God has spoken. 
He's given his word. In the same way that a household manager, God's steward, steward uh, doesn't go in changing what the, the owner of the house has designed. He's given a task to do certain things in the house. He doesn't step outside of that role as God's steward or as household manager. In the same way here, this is a trustworthy word God has given and he has been taught it and he holds firmly to that. He doesn't deviate from that. That's true of the shepherds. That's also true for all believers. God has given us his trustworthy word. We receive it. We are taught it. And so all of us, every believer, should receive that word and should know it. They should, we should grow in our grace and knowledge about God as we study God's word. We should sit under the teaching. We hear what the shepherd says and we examine the scriptures and do it. And as we grow in maturity in that, we grow in the ability to even share that with others, even on a one-to-one basis. So it's true for the pastors to hold fast to this trustworthy word is taught is true for all of us as well. This is what we look for in leaders, spiritual leaders of the church. This is my prayer is that we would see more and more believers grow to fit this description here. More and more believers grow to fit this description. So that we could even raise up here at Redeemer more people that would fit this description and then can be seen as having the reputation by all in our covenant community to fulfill this role as shepherds and overseers and teachers. My, my request to you, will you pray to that end? Every other Tuesday night, we have this study with these guys where we're going through a, a, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Long, so it's a confession. Norm, our current belief uh, thing takes up like four pages. This one's like 60-something pages. Right, guys? It's not intimidating at all, right, guys? Hello? You guys in here? Okay, right? It's not intimidating at all, but it's, I, you can ask them. I think it's awesome so far. Um, they'll ask questions, by the way, was, several times this has happened where they'll ask a question. I go, well, actually, we're going to get to that in the next chapter. And uh, they kind of were like, you always keep pushing it off. And I'm like, that's where I get your attendance to stay the whole time. Like, I keep, I, I'm going to answer that the next time we gather. So if you want an answer, you got to come back. Um, but this, uh, I bring that up to say, what a great training ground for these, for these men. So I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray for these guys that are going through this study. Pray for me as we're doing this. And pray that God will raise up more people who could fit this description. Somebody who's above reproach. Not arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for grain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and holds fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those 
who contradict it. And may this passage challenge all of us to grow by God's grace into the image of his son. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for your wonderful word. This trustworthy word, this faithful word. We thank you that that you have recorded your word, you've inscripturated it. We have the blessing in this day and age to have it at our disposal, and we are truly grateful, grateful for that. We thank you for all of the teachers and pastors from of old, going all the way back to the original, uh, the original apostles, that we stand and hold fast to this long line of teaching that people have held for millennia. And so, God, we thank you for this. Help us to hold fast to these things. And may what is pictured here be the aspiration for all of us. God, as you you take your people, your redeemed, your elect, and you present us to yourselves, may we more and more grow into conformity with the state that we will be in when we stand before you in your presence forever. God, we ask that you would do that in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Friends, will you stand for our closing uh, benediction today? A reminder, there's an offering box uh, out on the table. Uh, uh, Also, remember the prayer requests that are in the back of the the handout your uh encourage you to look at those and now our closing benediction is as we are sent and commissioned off brothers and sisters may the grace of our lord jesus christ and the love of god our father and the fellowship that we have in the holy spirit be with us all as we go thank you